get started. It's 12.30 on the dot. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Welcome, you're back. Welcome, Joe. Hope you've uh, enjoyed the beef stew today. It's my favorite soup that they have. We, if you were here with us in Genesis, this is what Jacob sold his, Esau sold his birthright. It was this. <laughs> just like that, y'all. Just like that. Yeah, totally worth it, too. Totally worth it. <laughs> Those of you watching on the video, you don't get the experience. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 9 this week. We did chapter 8 last week. It was the ordination. It was the filling. The priests got their hands full, so to speak. Um, God gave the tabernacle design in Exodus. They built the tabernacle in Exodus. God came down in fire and glory in Mount Sinai, and then his glory filled the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, the last chapter. Leviticus opens with the directions on how to use this new glory-filled tabernacle. The sacrifices, how they would offer them, what they would be for, the purposes of each, and how the priesthood would function. The priesthood is the lifeline between God and the nation. And Israel itself, in turn, collectively, would be the priestly lifeline between God and the nations. That's a key insight to keep in mind because it's going to shape a lot of biblical theology. There's going to be a reason why God's so angry at Israel so much in the Old Testament. Because Israel, through their disobedience, is actively frustrating the plans of God to reach the nations. That's, that's one of the things that gets lost in the shuffle when we do Old Testament and New Testament. We think Old Testament, God's dealing with Israel, and he's just mad because they worship other gods. Yeah, like any spouse would be mad if their uh, spouse cheated on them, and rightly so. God does get mad at Israel for cheating on him with other gods. But deeper than that, is because to keep in mind the purpose of Israel, the purpose of Israel being called to begin with was so that they would be a light to the nations. So that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Basic foundational Old Testament theology. <clears throat> um, I, don't know, I don't mention a lot of books in here, but if you're a reader and you want to get a grasp on this from a bird's eye view, the best book of biblical theology I've ever read in my life is Christopher Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, Christopher Wright's book called The Mission of God. It won Christianity Today's Book of the Year Award a few years back, and it is, it is without a doubt the best overall presentation of the story of the Bible that I've ever read, and particularly from the Old Testament perspective. And that's what Israel is called to do. They're called to extend the mission of God on earth. They're the means by which God is actively seeking to recreate and restore and renew the world that's been contaminated and corrupted by sin. And so Genesis opens with that story. Exodus gives us, or Genesis then gives us the development of that promise from individual to family, and then from family to nation. Exodus gives us the beginning of that nation as they come out of their bondage, their exile in Egypt into the land that God's, or, or on their way to the land that God's going to bring them to, and the purpose in calling uh, them as a nation to fulfill the promise that God made to the person 
back in Genesis. So everything builds on everything. And now Leviticus introduces how they will act. Exodus is introduced it a little bit in terms of the Ten Commandments and the Covenant Code. But now Leviticus spells out how they will act primarily in the realm of the holy. And they didn't divide the, the, the um, everyday life from spiritual life like other ancient Near Eastern peoples do. Other ancient Near Eastern peoples, you could do what you want in your everyday life, largely. As long as you paid homage to the gods, as long as you said the right things, as long as you gave the right sacrifices, um, then the gods would kind of leave you alone at best. In Israel, their ethics and their worship are linked together, tied together. So that worship without ethics becomes meaningless. And ethics without worship becomes impossible. And Jesus carries this on in the New Testament when he talks about the two great commands. Two great commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He puts those two right there. He says, on these hang everything else. So two sides of the same coin. The vertical, loving God. And the horizontal, loving neighbor. And if you ever remove one of those, you end up with a bastardization of biblical religion. And, and so Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the whole of the prophets, all of scripture is, is shouting to God's people, keep those things entwined together. Keep those things together. Don't lose sight of either end. Love God, love people serve God, sacrificially serve people. Um, and so this is the basis. Now within that, there's going to be this, this calling of certain group of Israel within Israel. So within the, the kingdom, within the priestly nation, there's going to be a call of specific group, the Levites. And they are called to minister in the tabernacle. They are called to oversee the worship that's done according to how God's given it. And the worship according to how God's given it was given to Moses according to the pattern that God showed him on Mount Sinai. So what's going on in the tabernacle in some way that we can't fully explain mimics, parallels, or shadows what is going on in the heavenlies or what will one day happen in the heavenlies, as the author of Hebrews makes clear. So the earthly tabernacle is the shadow of the heavenly presence of God. The, the taking of the blood and bringing it into the presence of the tabernacle, putting it on the altar, is a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice, of the ultimate lamb who's going to shed his blood on the heavenly altar. The cleansing of the tabernacle through these anointing and, and ordination of the priests and these rituals that, uh, that, uh, that have sacramental effect those are all hints and shadows at what goes on in the heavenly when the ultimate high priest, the true priest, takes the final sacrifice into the heavenly throne room itself. All of this is language that the author of Hebrews uses to describe what happened on Easter. So it's important, and I harp on it every week, and I'll continue to harp on it because scripture harps on it, is that this, what we're seeing in Israel is the first or the second millennium BC foreshadowing of what would happen in the first century AD. We're seeing in Leviticus how God is preparing his people for their destiny as his people. And this is before things have gone off the rails. 
This is before things have gone off track to the point where God says, I'm actually going to do a, I'm going to do the promise I originally made, but I'm going to do it in a new way because this way is not working because of your rebellion. We're not at that point yet. That's later in the prophets. We're at the point now where God is setting it up and giving the people the priesthood so that they can begin the long, centuries-long process of learning what it is to be God's people in the midst of a fallen world, radiating out the knowledge of Him and the glory of Him and the presence of Him, and also communicating the stark reality of the sinfulness and the fallenness of humanity, including themselves, including the priests. Another big point is the priests of Israel had to deal, had to make atonement for their own sins first before they could make atonement for the people's sins. And so they're, unlike other <clears throat> beliefs where the priest stood apart, where the priest kind of got a pass, where the priest had a secret ritual whereby they were okay and above everyone else, in Israel that was not the case. The priests were not above anyone else. They were in the midst of everyone else. In fact, they were in the center of the camp surrounding the tabernacle around which the rest of Israel came. So we get in chapter nine, in chapter 8, the priests are ordained, and God says there's this seven-day process. And we talked about last week how it echoes the creation account, this, this new thing's coming into being, and uh, a, new, a new class of, of worker within Israel, the Levites, the priests, uh, Aaron's sons, are, are coming into being, are being birthed through this seven-day period where they are stationed at the entrance of the tent, being literally being the buffer between the people and God's holiness for seven days, so for a week, for a week. So like every day since the last time we've had lunch together, that's the period of time that we're talking about. They did that for a week. Then we pick up in chapter 9, verse 1, on the eighth day. And there's always significance when you see that phrase, on the eighth day. Because the eighth day is not just chronological, but it's also symbolic theologically of newness, of, of the new thing that's come about after this seven-day period. And so you can just grab a concordance or do a Google search sometime and see where all the phrase the, on the eighth day occurs in Scripture and look at the different meanings that it has in the different instances in which it's found. On the eighth day, it's a new thing now. Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. In other words, your sin has to be dealt with first Aaron, high priest. Then say to the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with oil. That's the people's part. Aaron deals with his sins, then receives the offerings of the people. Now, there's no reparation offering mentioned. The, the fifth type of offering, the, the reparation, or the, uh, I can't remember the other word for it, the restitution, because that was a private offering that was done whenever someone had wronged someone else. That was, if you go back and read, check the video for, the, I believe, two weeks ago. That was the offering where you would bring it to make things right between you and another person. Not at that point yet. This is the beginning, so there's no need. That's the one type of the five that's missing in this section because there's no need for it. 
So Moses or Aaron tells him, bring all these, the last sentence, for today Yahweh will appear to you. For today, Yahweh or the Lord is the English version, the Lord will appear to you. This is a big deal. The last time God appeared to the people was at Mount Sinai when he appeared in fire and thunder and lightning and, and earthquake and the people were freaked out. And they told Moses, you go talk to him because we're too, you know, his, he'll overcome us, we're too sinful. And, and Moses tells them, take courage, the Lord wants to appear among you. So now this is a huge deal. This is like Mount Sinai 2.0 is going to happen. <laughs> Verse 5, they took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting. And the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. This is a principle in place that God is putting. God wants to appear amongst his people, but God will only do it on God's terms. And it will have to come about as a result of obedience by the people. When there's rampant disobedience by the people, the punishment that God threatens later in the Old Testament is that he will remove his dwelling, remove his glory from among them. And he does that before they're exiled into Babylon, that the glory of the Lord leaves and later, after the time of Jesus, in, in, in Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, he writes about how just before the temple was destroyed by the Romans, like after, around 70 AD, just before then, there was a vision that appeared to many of these sounds of like horses and chariots and, and armies and this noise, and the vision was the temple doors were thrown open. And the people at the time, the rabbis at the time, interpreted that as God is leaving his temple. And then immediately after that, Rome destroyed that temple. That's not even in scripture. That's Josephus' account, not a Christian. Um, but this idea when God leaves, his people are in trouble. So the converse is when God is there, his people can take courage. His presence among them is all they need. And Jesus says, you know, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. There was a comforting statement for him to make for his disciples. So God's presence is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of this whole thing, this tabernacle, is God's presence. Because if God's presence is there and Israel is in right relation with him, then the nations that look and see are drawn to Israel and in turn drawn to the God that they're worshiping. That's how he wants it to work. That's the plan, plan A, so to speak, that's been revealed at this point for Israel. That's their destiny. <clears throat> Verse 7, Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering. Make atonement for yourself and for the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people. In other words, the collective offering for the collective people. We read about a few chapters ago. And make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came to the altar, slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. His sons brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger into the blood. He put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. On the altar he burned the fat, the kidneys, and the covering of the liver from the sin offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burned up outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. His sons handed him the blood. He sprinkled it against the altar on all sides. They handed him the burnt offering, piece by piece, including the head, and he burned them on the altar. 
He washed the inner parts and the legs and burned them on top of the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people. He took the goat for the people's sin offering and slaughtered it and offered it for a sin offering as he did with the first man. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in the prescribed way. He also brought the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as the fellowship offering for the people. The sons handed in the blood. He sprinkled it against the altar on all sides with the fat portions of the ox and the ram, the fat tail, the layer of fat, the kidneys, and the covering of the liver. These they laid on the breast. Then Aaron burned the fat on the altar. Aaron waved the breast and the right thigh before the Lord as a wave offering as Moses had commanded. It would have been his portion of the son's portion. Then Aaron lifted his hands, and the NIV says towards the people, but the Septuagint, the Greek version, and some other versions say on behalf of the people, and he blessed them. So if he lifted his hands towards the people, then it was the people that he was blessing. If he lifted his hands on behalf of the people, then it was the offerings he was blessing. And later in scripture, there's talk of priests coming and blessing the offerings that are being made. So it's, I think it's likelier that that's probably what he's blessing. But regardless, he pronounces this blessing. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Literally, the altar was about four feet high, so he stepped down off of the altar. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. And they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. I'm going to pause there for a minute so you can see the, this, the progression here. This is the order of this worship is presented. The first thing that's done is the sin offering. That's the offering, remember, the, the unintentional sin offering. That's the offering that cleanses. That's the offering that purifies. Sometimes it's called the purification offering. That's the offering that makes everything clean and pure in order for God's presence to dwell in. Then the next offering is the burnt offering. That is the one that was entirely given to God. That's the one that's basically saying, I'm, I'm fully devoting myself. This animal is standing in my place as something fully devoted, completely devoted to God and no other purpose. And that makes atonement for the people. So there's cleansing. And then there's atonement that's symbolized by this full devotion. Then after that, there are the other offerings, the thanksgiving or the peace offering. After that then, there can be the fellowship, the celebration that takes place when peace has been restored between the greater and the lesser party. So the peace offering can come, and the peace offering is the one, the thanksgiving offering, that everyone gets to partake in. Everyone gets to share as a meal. And along with that, because it is a meal, is the grain offering, the bread, the other way of symbolically dedicating the proceeds or, or the fruit of the harvest to God. And then the, the, the communion is had, the meal is shared, the presence of God is there. There's, there's, a, there's a logic to the way these offerings are given. First prepare the ground by cleaning it. Then atone. Bring atonement and devotion on behalf. Then bring thanksgiving and fellowship because of the atonement, because of the cleansing, because of the relationship that's there. And celebrate it together in his presence. That's what the symbolism of this whole sacrificial system is. You know why the sacrifices? Because meals are where fellowship happens. And the sacrifices were how the priests, at least, and a lot of the people ate. 
So it's all tied into how they're eating together and they're sharing a meal, they're sharing table fellowship. Why did Jesus always eat with people? Sharing a fellowship, going into and having a meal together. Something transpires there spiritually that's, that's hard to replicate in any other setting. And that's what God bases the entire sacrificial system on in a way that teaches and communicates these deep spiritual and theological truths. <clears throat> so after that happens, then the glory of the Lord appears to people. And that word glory is the word, that, it, it's the word heavy. It's, we've talked about this before, the heaviness of God, his felt presence. It's so thick you can feel God in this place, so to speak. But in this case, it's not just the glory of the Lord. Verse 24, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Now, I always picture just casually reading this as, as like the prophet Elijah, that story, you know. Elijah prepares a sacrifice, calls on the name of God, fire comes down from heaven, consumes it. But that's not what the text says. Fire comes out, not down. It comes out from the presence of the Lord. Where is the presence of the Lord? In the tabernacle. Where is this offering, where is the altar taking place? Right in front of the door to the tabernacle. Fire comes out, let's see, so you guys are facing me. So here's the tabernacle. Fire comes out from the tabernacle, out from the presence of the Holy of Holies, out from between the feet of the cherubim to the altar and consumes the offering that's on top of it. And this is the fire then that is never to go out. This is the fire that got the previous chapter said, keep this fire burning day and night by adding the sacrifices to it in the morning and in the evening. Tend the fire, keep it going. This is Israel's job. Why? Because it's God's presence that came out, literally came out from his presence. God's glory was revealed as fire. And the fire consumed what was on that altar. And what was on that altar was the sacrifices that God himself had required of his people. So this was the way of basically flipping the switch and seeing if this whole machine works. And it did. And the people fall face down out of joy. They shout for joy. But also there's going to be some healthy fear as well. I mean, they just saw a heavenly flamethrower in the second millennium B.C. Flamethrowers will not be invented for a long time. This was something that was fantastic, spectacular. The first nine chapters of this book have been leading up to this point. This is the celebration. God is among us. Sinai has moved. Mount Sinai has moved from the mountain to the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle is the presence of this God that dwells among us. This is hugely comforting for the people, and it's a sign that God is in their midst. And that's why they would keep the fire going. That's why God had charged them to keep it burning. That's why when the temple was dedicated by Solomon later, the tabernacle, tabernacle gets turned into a permanent temple. The, again, fire comes and, sac and burns up the sacrifices when Solomon prays. Um, this, is, this is communicating strongly to the people that God's presence is among them. And it's fascinating that his presence is fire. It was at the burning bush fire. When he appeared at the top of Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments, the voice spoke out of the fire. When he appears here, 
it's as fire. When John the Baptist was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, he would come and his fire would be what cleansed and what showed the value of each person's faith. When Paul talks about this in Corinthians 3, he says every man's work will be tested by fire and what is built out of the pure and the sacred will remain and what's built out of the straw and stubble and hay will be burned up. I'm talking about the ministries that people build. It's not talking about personal salvation. The passage is talking about ministries. Um, the fire is the number one symbol that depicts God to the prophets, especially Ezekiel and John in Revelation. Everywhere, I'll just give you some references if you want to write them down. Deuteronomy 4 says, our God is a consuming fire. It's one of the few statements of, in Scripture, our God is blank. And it's consuming fire. Psalm 18, Ezekiel 1, Malachi 3, Hebrews 1, where God talks about his servants are fire. In other words, he is the sovereign God who controls fire as his servants. Matthew 3, Luke 3, Luke 12, Jesus talks and says he's come to bring fire upon the earth and how he wishes it was already burning. Acts 2, Pentecost, 1 Corinthians 3. So it's not just a minor theme in the Bible. How does the lake of fire fit in there? Well, that's the, the ultimate judgment, the ultimate destiny. That's where what's going to end up there will be destroyed permanently, rather than the fire of God that purges and refines. So it's a use, it's, it's use in Malachi, fire is an image of God's judgment. And in Scripture, God's judgment is always the flip side of God's vindication, two sides of the same point. So when God comes in fire, it's going to depend on the, the, what you're made of as to whether you survive that fire and are purified through it, or whether you're consumed by that fire. It's exactly what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 3. Peter says it, I believe in 2 Peter, about fire will come and lay bare all of the things of the earth. So it is a theme that runs from the beginning to the end of Scripture. And the reason I harp on it in the last few minutes that we have here is because it's an image that we in the Western Church have largely distanced ourselves from. We've largely seen God through the lens of Jesus, which is good and right and how we should do it, but through the lens of Jesus as gentle Jesus, or as Jesus is my homeboy Jesus, or as buddy Jesus. We've seen the lens, seen God through the lens of that Jesus, not through the lens of Malachi 3's Jesus, or Luke 12's Jesus, or Revelation's Jesus. And so what the Old Testament helps us do and what this tabernacle whole thing that we're looking at helps us reclaim is some of that sense of awe at who God is. Some of that sense of he is a consuming fire. And when a consuming fire appears, something gets consumed. And that's exactly what it says here. It consumed the burnt offering. Now, in just two verses... That same exact fire is going to come out of that same exact place and is going to consume something else on the altar. Exact same words. So there's this, this chapter is linked specifically to the next chapter. And the events of the next chapter have caused a lot of people to scratch their heads, a lot of people to say, oh, I don't understand that, I, I don't like that. You can't read the next chapter without having read the first nine chapters. 
because what happens in the next chapter is contingent upon what has happened in these nine chapters. And it's going to emphasize that God is a consuming fire. And a consuming fire can't be manipulated, it can't be controlled, it can't be tamed. C.S. Lewis hit on this in his most classic line in all of the Narnia books when they're asking about Aslan and then, then Mr. Beaver, Mrs. Beaver is describing Aslan, the lions and the children and the children are getting scared and they say, oh my gosh, this lion's coming? Goodness, is he safe? And the beaver turns to the girl that Lucy had asked and says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. That's the sense of God in the Old Testament. He's not safe. You can never presume on God's presence. You can never presume on entering or approaching God however you like in the Old Covenant. But you can always presume on His goodness. And if you're in line with His goodness, then His consuming fire is a welcomed consumption. Because it, it, it consumes what you've given a sacrifice. It consumes the thing within you that you want to be taken away or purged. It consumes the, the, the sinful nature that you're repentant of. That's the kind of thing that God's fire is meant to consume. But if you're not walking in fellowship with God and in obedience to God, obedience is the key, then his fire will consume a lot more than just a sacrifice. And it could possibly even consume us, as we'll see in the next chapter, and then how that unfolds in the New Testament. Because we have to filter it through the cross and the pronunciation of forgiveness and the perseverance of the saints and all of those kind of issues that come up. But it's 1 o'clock, so it's time to go back to work. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week, Leviticus 10.